This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be doing our second annual Last Waltz Thanksgiving celebration. You may remember last year I had Hanif Abdurraqib on the show and we walked through one of the greatest rock movies of all time, a movie that takes place during Thanksgiving. And it's a movie that I've come to watch every Thanksgiving. It's a, it's, a, it's a holiday tradition for me. So it was a lot of fun talking about it last year with Hanif. And then I thought, wait a minute, if it's a tradition, we should do it every year on the podcast. So that's what we're going to be doing again this year. At this time of the year, you want to be around family and friends. So I called up my good friend, Steve Gorman. You may know him as the drummer of the Black Crows. Really great guy. And I knew that he'd have lots to talk about with this movie. He actually has interacted with members of the band. He knew Levon Helm well uh, before Levon passed away. And yeah, I know he's seen the movie a bunch of times. So, you know, why not just pull up with Steve, get some, get some turkey in our gullet, and talk about the movie. I mean, we didn't actually eat turkey. But, you know, like when you are listening to this podcast, I want you to pretend that we're all at a big table eating a lot of food. <laughs> you know, me... The Celebration Rock listeners and Steve, just talking about The Last Waltz, having a good time, getting into the holiday spirit, talking about Van Morrison in the purple suit and Neil Diamond, you know, wondering what the hell he's doing there and Bob Dylan, you know, why does he look like a rabbi in this movie? All the big questions about The Last Waltz, all these issues we talk about in this episode. So it's a lot of fun. It's our second annual holiday episode, talking about The Last Waltz. But before we get into that, Let's talk about another way to eat food, Derek. And that's Blue Apron. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite way to eat food. Would it be sad to do Blue Apron on uh, Thanksgiving? I don't think so. No, not at all. Not at all. You're going to get some side dishes there. Well, as you may know, Derek, they do offer farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes, and they bring it right to your door. It's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. And I'm looking at what they're offering here, and there's no turkey in here, but you know, you could get a tomato and basil pesto pizza, the stir-fried sweet chili chicken. How about some seared steaks and homemade steak sauce for your Thanksgiving meal? Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah, you like that? Or they have seared beef dumplings and jasmine rice. I'll tell you one of the, one of the things um, you know from doing Blue Apron is that I've gotten a lot better at learning how to like season food and like little ticks, uh, tricks and tips to make sauces and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're kind of manning the side dishes for your family on Thanksgiving, uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can use, a lot of techniques you can use just from from doing all the making all the recipes all the time. My mouth is literally watering listening to you talk about seasoning <laughs> food. I didn't have I, I didn't I, I didn't have much of a breakfast this morning either. So that might have something to do with it. But okay, so if if you're not already a Blue Apron customer, it's probably too late to get in on Thanksgiving action at this point. But however, we are offering a special deal to our Celebration Rock listeners. If you check out this week's menu on the website, that's blueapron.com. You're gonna get your first three meals for free if you go to blueapron.com/celebration. 
Again, that's blueapron.com slash celebration. You're going to get your first three meals for free. Won't be Thanksgiving, but it will be three free meals, and they'll be very well seasoned. Right, and, and Christmas is coming up around the corner, so you'll be ready for that. <laughs> exactly. So again, go to blueapron.com slash celebration. You're going to get delicious food, and you're also going to help the podcast. So thank you so much for that. Okay, so now it's our special holiday episode, looking at the last waltz, revisiting the last waltz. It's something we do here every year at Celebration Rock, and uh, yeah, it's me and Steve Gorman talking about it. We had a great time, and uh, when we get into it, this is me and Steve talking about The Last Waltz on the Celebration Rock podcast. Steve, I'm excited to talk about The Last Waltz with you, but before we begin, I feel like we have to reference the project that we're working on together, and I know I know, like, I know, know like, you especially want to keep us under wraps, so I'm not going to go into detail, but I just want to say, because this is like a Thanksgiving episode that I feel very thankful for you and the fact that after working together fairly closely for the past year, that we still like each other, you know, cause I feel like, because well, you, you never know, I guess I'm speaking, I'm being presumptuous, I guess. On, hang on. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, probably better served in a private company for the purposes of this podcast. Hey man, it's awesome. <laughs> and I, and I love you and I feel, feel like a brother. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say, like... Now, I mean, when a member of the Black Crows says you're like a brother to me, you have to take that with a serious grain of salt. Well, I was going to say, I, I feel like that's you're, you're, you're twisting the knife there a little bit. I don't, I'm not taking that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to say, like, in our band, that you are the Chris Robinson of our band, because you're, you're the front person, and, I'll take uh, it. and I'm the Steve Gorman, I feel like, of, of our band. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to... That that's actually that I'm gonna need some time to process that mindset. I'm gonna. It's, it's, I, I, I'd love to come back with some incredibly witty repartee, but but you've put me on my back heel, and kudos to you, sir. Well, you know, I felt like I had to give it back. I mean, because again, this is maybe just from being in the Black Crows world, I feel like you you have to uh, be prepared. It's like a prison yard. You have to be prepared to stick the shiv in somebody else. You can't because you, if you're weak, you're done. But the, but 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 the but the but the you know but but the, but, but but we have great well yeah, you're right that's, 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 you're, who am I kidding yeah prison yard that's the name of the book by the way <laughs> well yeah, I was and, and 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 you know I I tried to be Brubaker you know what I mean oh yeah I mean oh. you know if you go back to that Redford reference for that, the, for the younger listeners that was a great reference I was gonna say you're you're like Papillon like you're you're breaking out of the prison I feel like in this I'll book. take it I'll take it. So in that, so so you can be McQueen and I'll be Hoffman in in that scenario. I'm I'm good with either one. I just want to be associated with greatness, and you know what, you know, and you know, Stephen, you you, you buy the ticket, you got to take the ride, baby. Absolutely. Whatever, come, whatever comes your way, you sign up, you, you serve your time, you serve your tour of duty, and you go home, and you just thank God you made it. Well, I just want to say again, we're not going to give anything away, but I'm really excited about this thing that we're working on and uh I am too. i'm looking forward to talking too. about it more in detail in the future but I, I think we're sitting on something good here my friend it, it is uh it's, it's amazing to know that i can sit down and write you know twelve thousand words that you can look at and go that's nine thousand too many but good job steve <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well again I, i'm the rhythm section of this book so you flowery know, language I gotta pull- flowery language it's, well, who knew i had so much of it in <laughs> Well, okay, well, let's talk about The Last Waltz here, and because I know this is a movie that means a lot to me and a lot to you, and I know for me it's it's become like a Thanksgiving tradition to, re- right. to revisit this movie, 
I'm curious, you know, before we start talking about it in detail and also just your connections to some of the people in the band, um, when did you first see The Last Waltz? Do you remember? Um, it would have been well after the fact. I mean, it was sometime in the 90s. I had heard about it and read about it forever, but it was kind of like the, the Beatles movie Let It Be, you know, like, hey, wait a minute, I still never really saw it. Um, and... I, I got to think it was probably, I mean, The Last Waltz was available. I just never sat down to see it. You know, all of a sudden it dawned on me like, oh, wait, there's a VHS copy of it right there. But it was probably, well, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. It wasn't the 90s. It was like 89, okay. 1989. It, it, I think my friend Mac, is. I watched it at his apartment in, in Atlanta. That's the first time I saw it. And I'm, I'm, um, but but I know that for the for the Black Crows in the early 90s, it was, one of those things that would be on, you know, regularly along with just records by the band. And it was just a part of, it was a, it was a, it was just one of the handful of things that, that could have and would have been on at any given moment regularly. Mad Dogs and Englishmen being another one for a while there. And I'm wondering, you know, somewhat, you know, because you saw it, you know, right before you, before the band was really big. And then you said you were watching it like as the band was really blowing up. I'm curious, like your perspective as the, as the Black Crows, yeah. as as the Black Crows were blowing up. I mean, I'm just curious, like for your perspective, like as someone who, you know, was living the life, you know, being on the road and and experiencing some of the things that like the that the band talks about in that movie. Like, I'm curious about how your perspective maybe changed as you became more experienced in the rock and roll world. Like, did the romanticism sort of wear off? Did you see through some of the things in the movie that like didn't seem as yeah, genuine I, anymore? You know, I never, I didn't really romanticize it too much, even initially. But, but I, I, you know, probably because I was still young enough. I was in my early twenties. And watching that movie, you know, 14 or 13 years after it happened, that was like a, that was, that might as well have been 50 years ago to me. I mean, even, <laughs> right. you know, it, it, I was dumb enough and I didn't have enough perspective. I thought that was, that was like watching the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl or something. I mean, that's just like old, you know, I loved it, but I didn't see any connection to me in there, in my band. It was just like, oh, that's back when things used to be that way. Yeah, and in 1989, things felt like they were very different. I mean, just it, it's hard to explain that, but I wasn't looking at that and thinking about drawing parallels to Mr. Crow's Garden or by that time the Black Crows at all. Um, it was the mid 90s before I would have looked at the Last Waltz and ever gone, oh, <laughs> like as everything else started to make sense. The the first time I really was able to put other bands and huge iconic influential bands into a proper perspective it really was when the Beatles anthology aired on TV because it was the first time I ever looked at them and thought, Oh, they're just like us. They're just guys in a band. Like every bit of the sheen had been stripped away. I didn't have any romantic. I wasn't romanticizing what the black crows were going through too much. I mean, I loved it for very personal, you know, I love that we were our gang and we were doing these things, but I was never one who looked at what other bands did before us and tried to be like that. I mean, I, I wasn't so wrapped up in that stuff. So when I did start to relate to The Last Waltz, it was it was much more realistic. You know what I mean? It was sort of a thing of... But it's also hard to remember how I really saw it because now I know so much more about not just what that life is like, but what the... You know, I hadn't read the Levon book. I didn't read that till 10 years ago. Yeah. And and ever since I read that, I looked at that movie very differently, like anybody would. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, I just, I, I decided I didn't like Scorsese's films after I read the Levon <laughs> book for a few minutes there. You know, it's like it, it right. changes everything the more you know about something. So, um, I always loved the band, but the truth is, I, I didn't compare the Black Crows. Or, there, there were so few connecting points, just because I thought we could never be like that. Like the, their musicality and their all of the, the instruments and the singing and everything about them, that was just nothing to Black Crows in the early 90s. I would have ever looked at and said, hey, we could get there. I mean, it made more sense to me to look at Led Zeppelin or the Stones. Yeah. But I never looked at the band really until 95, 96, 97. That was the only time I started thinking like, hey, we're getting somewhere. And now all of a sudden, a lot of what they were doing musically makes a lot more sense. And a lot of what they were going through in that documentary makes a ton of sense. Right, just the exhaustion that you see yeah. on their face and like how wasted. Oh, they of course. Look. I mean, the thing you know, and, and when when someone's you know, to me, the last waltz, the first real look you get at Richard Manuel when a uh, shape I'm in kicks in. Yeah, and the light turns on and over his face, and he's just at that piano. I mean, the look. I mean, he's so far gone, and that he was like 33 when that was filmed. <laughs> right. I mean, he's 33 years old right there. I'm 53 right now, and I've never looked that old a right. day in my life. And and just the look in his eyes, and at the same time, he looks like a lost little kid. I mean, that first, you know, and, and I'm probably, I'm sure, not the only person who would say this, but that first time, you know, every time I see that film, when that light over, when he gets that spotlight on him and the look in his eye, it just, it just breaks my heart, you know, and then... And then, of course, you know, he looks so far gone. And then, of course, when the vocals, when it's time to sing, well, he just lays into it, like always. Well, and I remember, and I think I said this, like, the last time we, we talked about this movie, but, I mean, my initial knowledge of the band was very much based on The Last Waltz. And right. I, because of that, it, it caused me to underrate Richard Manuel because he's not in the movie very much. Right. I, I think deliberately, for the reasons you're saying, because he's not in great shape. I remember, like, because I was watching the movie this morning, at the end when they're doing uh, I Shall Be Released, you know, Richard Manuel's singing the lead vocal on at least one yeah. verse, and they don't do a close-up of him. Right. <laughs> Which seems, like, I assume that they probably had some close-ups, and they were like, oh, we we can't show him. But it's yeah. sort of odd when you're watching the movie, because it's like, well, who's singing that? You know, yeah. singing this part. Um, but uh, it wasn't until later when I started learning about them where I was like, well, Richard Manuel is actually a big part of this group. It's not just oh, Robbie Robertson, you know, dominating everything as it as it appears in the movie. Yeah, well, and of course, all that by design, you know, Robbie. Right. You know, they, that's the first, if I'm not mistaken, that's the first show and last show ever where Robbie Robertson had a vocal mic. <laughs> he, he never sang, right? And and he didn't even sing backups, and that mic was never on, and he pretended you know scorsese knew he was going to be the focal point and said go sing all these songs and you know and levon's levon talks about that he's like we were all like what the hell is he doing with a microphone why is he acting like he's singing right and it's funny because at the very end when they're walking off the stage um you know you hear the crowd cheering and all that and robbie walks up to a mic to say thank you but no noise comes out <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like dude you're busted um I mean, do you feel like, because there's a lot in the movie that, uh, you know, th- there's the way it's presented, and then, and then there's like a subtext to it, and what you're just talking about in a way is a subtext, because it's not spelled out that Robbie Robertson shouldn't be singing, it's sort of like, if you know something about the band, you, you kind of get something else extra out of it, knowing sure. that, and it takes on a different dimension, and I, I, I'm curious, because I know you watched the movie last night, or I think you said you are going to watch it again, yeah. and... 
I'm just wondering if there's certain things that you read into it when you watch it now that maybe you didn't pick well, up on I'm, originally. Well, I'm, I'm totally aware of, like, the, the segments, you know, when they're sitting around telling old stories. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's two purposes to that. One is, for anybody who doesn't know where they came from or any of the story of, why, you know, why is there a film about these guys? You could say, oh, that's great. They connect the dots. They give some backstory. I looked at it, and all I think is, well, of course they talked about that because they wanted them to smile and laugh, and that's all. That's what all bands to the point where the only thing you can laugh about is the old days, right? You know, they probably had plenty of segments. I'm sure there's plenty of footage where they're sitting around talking about 1976, and it's probably dark as shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's you know when they're separated, they're probably all you know they're probably they're not like ripping each other, but I'm sure the vibe of talking about the current state of the band and when that was filmed I, I doubt it was anything anybody wanted to go sit through and watch you know it was trying to be a celebration it was supposed to be this this happy thing and i mean what's the the, the legend what robbie and scorsese shacked up in a in the hollywood hills for a couple of years with a you know a mac truck of cocaine and edited it nine thousand different times i'm sure they were you know i would love to see some of the early edits because i'm sure there was a lot of stuff in there that that you know that would have presented a very different picture of what they what the, what was going on inside the band at the time. Well, and it made me think too uh, a little bit like what you've told me about like when a band does interviews and how when you've been in a band for a while you know how to perpetuate your own mythology, you know, and you know the stories oh, no that you tell in the media that like that they want to hear about your band and like you're not lying, but there is a sort of a play acting thing. Going well, on. and you don't even know you're doing it. I mean, a lot of times that's, that's, you know, that you get into those, that's dangerous territory when, when you realize like, Oh wow. Things that, you know, the first time I heard someone else say it, I, it like snapped my head out of joint. Like what? And then three months later, Oh, I just said the same thing. <laughs> like, you know, because you do. And it's, and it's not, and it's not conscious. It just happens. And, and, that's the kind of stuff that, and you know, I do see that in other bands. I certainly saw it in, in my band. I mean, obviously that's where I saw it first, but you start to pick up on those things. And another thing about watching the last waltz, and this is true to any band. This is not a black crows comment. It's any band, which is everybody in the band also learns along the way what they can say, what's worth saying and what's not worth saying. What's, you know, what's too much of a hassle to, to argue about, and and when and any band that wants to continue to move forward, you start making, you sacrifice your own opinion for the well-being of the whole thing, because you know that you could lob hand grenades at any minute. And when that happens, it, you look up in a few years after that point, and suddenly no one knows ex really what each other really thinks. <laughs> you know, you're you're all towing the company line, no matter what, and it's. You, you, you know, the, the, the parameters or your, your, your end game goal lines, they shift constantly because it's like, and, and again, this is every band that you talk to. If someone's being real with you about how they functioned, it's like, well, you know, we, we set out to do this. And at a certain point in time, a lot of the, a lot of the personal interaction gets so clipped down to simply, you just don't say anything other than something you know will be well received. Yeah. I I find myself wishing that, I mean, I, obviously the movie, it's about the musical performances and how great they are, but I right. do find myself, during the rewatches that I've done, being fascinated by the interviews and kind of wishing I could see more of that. Because, you know, there's always those parts where someone will start talking like, 
you know, Rick Danko or, or Richard Manuel. And then Robbie Robertson will inevitably jump in and finish the story and take it over. Yep. And you can kind of see the guys, you know, their faces when that happens. And I'm just like, yep. what, like, what's Rick Danko thinking right now as Robbie Robertson is finishing this story? Like, yeah. is he cursing him up and down or is, is he like, you know, is he pretty cool about it? Like, does he know that, well, this is how it just works in our band. Like eventually he's going to start talking it, and I have to shut you up. You know what it is? It's, all of those. <laughs> it's every bit of those, you know? Um, and that's another thing. Like, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff about this that, again, anybody that's ever been in a, in a band for, for a certain, you know, for at least for a 10-year run, you know, when you when you have been around each other long enough to really, to both, you know, to know each other inside and out and then be really tired of each other and really, and lose perspective on everything else because you're, it's so insular. Anybody that's been in that situation watches this, and yeah, you pick up on all those things. Yeah, um, you know, and and you know, there's a there's a when and and the band did work like dogs for years before anybody had ever heard of them. So they had, you know, like when Robbie Robertson's talking about, you know, we've been together 16 years. You know, but the first eight of those were in complete anonymity, or the first six. Yeah. I mean, entire anonymity. They were touring with Bob Dylan, and still nobody knew who they were or gave a shit. They weren't a band. They were Bob Dylan's band all of a sudden. Right. And that was without Levon, so it wasn't really the same thing as the Hawks had always been. So, you know, and then they they put out songs for Big Pink, and then they didn't tour. <laughs> and then they... They didn't really go on the road and do anything until their second record came out, if I'm not mistaken. So, because yeah. they were already just frazzled. I mean, like, again, Richard Manuel's 33 in this movie. <laughs> right. I mean, that dude is, is it's, it's incredible what, what they had, what they'd already, the grinder they'd already been through. But for, you know, a bunch of farm boys from Canada, you know, anything yeah. beats, beats sitting out in Manitoba in January in the fields. Well, and that's the thing, because you do get a sense of the exhaustion, but then you also feel really sorry for Rick Danko because you feel like, oh, what the hell is this guy going to do now? Like, he seems yeah. like, like you know, he's playing, you know, Spill the Wine for Martin Scorsese, and, you know, he just seems yeah. like, like, oh, you already know, I mean, you know eventually that these guys are going to get back together without Rob, Robbie Robertson, and, and they're going to tour on their own. It's going to be sort of sad, you know, like <laughs> them playing, like, you know, dives again in the 80s and sure. all that. Um, but you do get that duality of like, oh, they do need to take a break, but then also like, well, what the hell else are they going to do with their lives? You know, like, yeah, without I mean, the band? I, I can I can feel sorry from for everybody in every perspective, even even Robbie Robertson. I mean, you know, it's like the thing with the Stones. It's like you know, Mick wasn't cool, but yeah, but his partner was a junkie. <laughs> someone had to someone had to keep it together. Yeah. Um, and Robbie was looking around and you could say what you want about Robbie Robertson, but he was sitting in a room with three guys that were a mess for right. years. And I don't know enough about Robbie at all. I just know things I've read and I, I didn't read his book. Um, you know, I don't know how much of that, is real, how much he really was just trying to keep it together for his family or what he wanted. But, you know, I, I, if, if he was not, if he wasn't doing drugs all the time, and the other and those other three guys most certainly were drinking and drugging to great excess for years, then eventually, yeah, he's going to be like, okay, fuck this shit. You know, I got to pull the plug. I mean, and then, but like you said, the other guys, it's like we're the band, we're great, we're we're yeah. incredible. And then again, go listen to their albums, and after a while, they're not that great. Right, right. I think it's um, just the resentment of like. 
yeah, we need this guy to lead us, but then it's also, you know, he has so much control over our lives. You know, you know at the we, end. It's, it's funny. We, I, was, I, I hadn't thought of this in years. Um, but we, uh, the Black Crows in 96, maybe 96, we went, a bunch of us went to see Neil Young, went to see Crazy Horse at Jones Beach uh, out on Long Island. And we walked, we were in the dressing room before the show and chatting with Neil and the guys in the band a little bit. And uh, I, I guess we had just been, some, some, someone mentioned the last waltz to Neil, something about it. And to Neil, it was just, you know, just a gig. He showed up and did a song. And, oh, those are my friends. I mean, it was, you know, he doesn't look at the last waltz like a thing. Yeah. And he just said, yeah, 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 it was something. Or I, I don't remember all the context, but at some point, and I don't remember which one of us, someone in the Black Crows world sits up, but man, so Robbie just, I guess he was just, just such an asshole. And, and Neil said, Hey, don't, don't diminish the asshole. He goes, every band needs one. He goes, cause most of the guys in bands are just good dudes and they don't make anything happen. <laughs> and I'm, I remember looking at him and I was like, that's awesome, but why did you tell Chris that? You know, I was like, I wish he hadn't been here when you said that. It was like a joke. You know, like Chris, don't think Neil Young's giving you permission to be an asshole. Well, I mean, it was already, but but we all laughed about that being, uh, afterwards. But I mean, but you know, to Neil, who's a peer and a guy, you know, that was his point. He's like, that was his way of saying too, like, yeah, but those other guys needed Robbie. What the fuck are they going to do without him? Yeah, I got to say, like, for personally, you know, I, I went through a long period where I was like anti. Robbie, Robbie Robertson and I've recently become a convert on the pro side and mm-hmm. I have to admit a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was on my podcast and I got to talk to him for an hour and he's like a charming <laughs> SOB He's char- yeah. and you talk to him and you realize he, he's like on the fucking basement tapes he was the lead guitarist on the 66 Bob Dylan tour it's like whatever he did he, he, well it's funny because no one talks about him being a great guitarist. Right. And he's a great guitarist. <laughs> that, that dude's a blowtorch. And, and people don't think of him in those terms because the songs he wrote were so iconic. And the band he was in is such an iconic with so much mythology. So you kind of forget the fact that, oh, yeah, when he was just someone else's guitar player, he was incredible. Did, did you have an encounter with him in the early 90s? Uh, yeah, we met him in... 91 or 92 like i said yeah it was between our first and second album but after the first tour and before the second record came out we were at a club in atlanta and robbie robertson was there and i'm trying i can't remember where um <laughs> but it it, it it ended the night ended with him and his girlfriend going over to rich's house we all went ended up at rich's house having drinks and uh and, and he was totally, I mean, he was super charming. And when he found out that, that, you know, we were like, I don't know, I don't know who started talking to him first, but he was like, oh, the Black Crows, you guys are like a real rock and roll band. Like he knew enough and was, um, I, I don't think he was, he, he wasn't like just being nice. He genuinely thought something about the band because he hung out with us and went over to Rich's house afterwards. So, but that was at a time, um, I wasn't driving, and so it's pretty fuzzy to me. <laughs> okay. I just remember I was sitting there watching him on Rich's couch, and he was flicking his ashes out without an ashtray. And I remember thinking, boy, Rich is going to be pissed when he sees ash all over his couch tomorrow, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, but no, he was super charming. He was great. He was yeah. really cool. He was telling stories, and we were all just like, oh, my God, it's Robbie Robertson. 
Yeah, because I mean, it was, it was really like Levon's book that I think definitely turned me against him and probably yeah, I think well, turned you, a lot of people <laughs> against him. Read that book, yeah. But, uh, you know, over time I've kind of, you know, I love Levon still forever, but I've, I've come to balance that out a little bit. I think Rob, he, well, was, he was hard on Robbie. I think, it, I, look, I, I, this is the thing, too. It's like, but you don't have to care. here's the truth it's none of your business it's i believe what levon said all happened but that's his that's his weight to carry or to leave behind or whatever it's just a story and it's true or it's his view of it and i mean you know what the book that you and i are working on right now there's things about there that I, i i tell stories in that book about me that make me look like a fucking idiot it's like you know, I tell stories about. I just, it's just my view of what happened. Here's, the, here's, here's where it went, and this is how all this made me feel. Right. That's kind of what Levon's book was, and I think he, I think he has a much angrier edge than than mine would or ever did or could have. But at the same time, I, you know, if, if somebody walked up to Levon and said, "Hey, man, sign this picture I took of you and Robbie," he wouldn't like tear it in half or anything. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like. You know, Levon loved that music as much as he ever did. I mean, till the day he died, he played those songs and revered them. You know, he loved that shit. So let's talk about the movie in terms of the performances. Like, what do you have, like, a favorite performance? Like, what jumps out at you? Like, what do you want to flip to when you put this movie on? Um, the, you know, I, can, I can't watch Van Morrison kick enough times. <laughs> right. You know, there, yeah. there, there's always that. Um, you know, the the... Dixie is incredible. All, all the Levon songs are, are always my favorites. But right. uh, no, they're, they're um, I, you know, but then again, just because I still can't believe it, Neil Diamond is incredible. He is <laughs> incredible. His, his whole thing, he's amazing in that thing. It's, and it's like, sort of like, what is he doing here? But yeah. he's, he has an amazing suit on. Like, and, it's, uh, it's an amazing suit, the shades, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the grimacing is is top shelf Neil. I mean, I, it's funny. I've I've never thought about it. Like, what do I gonna watch first? It's like because it's you you see I see clips and you see people send link. You know, I, I don't know. I bop around. I see pieces of it so often. I don't really think about it in terms of you know. In the old days, you would think about that. Like, well, I only got a few minutes. I got to queue up one thing, but it's all readily available. So I haven't thought about it in those terms. You know, like I love you know. Uh, the, oh, what's the song? The the first time the camera pulls back and Garth is playing a horn and you're just like, oh, oh yeah, what? <laughs> that's, it makes no difference. Yeah. And you're just like, oh God, that's right. You know, I mean, I mean, I know it now, but the first few times you see it, it was jarring. Like it's like a little saxophone a too. It's like a little baby saxophone. And it yeah, just sounds yeah, incredible. incredible. You know, uh, I mean the Van Morrison thing, I, I feel like is like the obvious number one. I, I mean, yeah. I always smile throughout that. And I, I learned more about Van Morrison, uh, I've been reading about him because I'm, I'm, I'm writing, I'm working on a piece about him. And one thing I didn't realize with my other viewings is that Van Morrison was sort of in the middle of like a hiatus period in his career at that time. Like he put out Veed and Fleece in 1974, and which is mm-hmm. a great album, but it, it flopped. And he went into this sort of exile for a while where he just drank a lot and didn't perform or make any records. And he, oh, got, wow. he got talked into doing The Last Waltz uh, in the midst of that. And I guess he was like really scared before going out. Like they had to literally push him out onto the stage, which is sort of funny considering he's wearing this like very grandiose purple suit. You know, it's like this mix of like, you know, fearlessness and stage fright. Of course. 
Um, but you know, just watching it again this morning, it made me think of. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, America's Got Talent, <laughs> where there's like a there's a cliche on that show where they always have like some schlubby person that you you know they, you put them on stage and you're like, oh, this person's not going to be any good, and then they you know, end up singing like incredibly well. And like, if you didn't know anything about Van Morrison before watching this movie, you just saw this guy, you know, he's kind of overweight wearing this ridiculous suit. He's balding. Mm -hmm. He looks like an accountant, you know, and then he starts singing. It's an amazing performance. The first line, I mean, he (laughs) hits that first note. It's like, good God almighty. I know. And the kicks, though. Uh, the, the, the funniest is as he's leaving the stage, they're still playing. <laughs> and his very last, they hit that, you know, where he's doing the kicks. Yeah. On his last one, as he's walking off, he just throws that arm up in the air. It's that <laughs> kind of drunk, sloppy, not quite in time. Oh, one more. What the fuck? It just, it. I laugh every time. It's oh, the, yeah. It's my, that's actually my. That's the best moment of the film to me. Yeah, he just says, he says like "thank you," like kind of mumbles it, and just like yeah. drops the microphone and like walks off. And he kind of yeah, he throws his arm up. Yeah, uh, so great. I mean, is he wasted in that performance? I, I I've never gotten a, I've never heard. I, mean, I think he'd probably gotten to the place where <laughs> um, if he, I don't know if he's wasted. If he'd only had a couple of beers, he still snapped back into, um, you know, stage shape. You know, you just got your your mannerisms, your. You're, you get into a flow a little bit. You just start, you know, everybody turns into Keith at some point. And, right. You know, you're, you're just playing that guy. You're being Van Morrison on stage. I mean. It's amazing. So um, I know that you've played some Last Waltz shows. Did you play this year already or is that coming up? Yeah, it was last. It was just last week, Saturday night. Last week, Saturday night. And this has become something, I mean, I feel like a lot of towns have this where yeah. there'll be like a like a band of like local all-stars that, come together mm-hmm. and play a Last Waltz show. And, of course, being in Nashville, you have some real all-stars playing that show. But how does that work when you do a Last Waltz show? Like, is there a draft for songs? Because I would imagine, like, people are yeah. lining oh, yeah. up to well, do the, Caravan. The, the one or I, yeah, the one I've done the last few years at the, at the Basement East Club uh, in Nashville, they have three different bands for the night, and each band takes 10 or 12 songs. And it's not just the songs from The Last Waltz. It's just all, you know, it's like, well, this is on Rock of Ages, but it's not on The Last Waltz, but we want to do it. You know, it's one of those kind of, it just gets thrown together like that. It's basically, and it's a fundraiser for, you know, Music Alliance and the Ben Stone Fund. Um, it's a, a local musician who died, but he didn't have insurance. He's a young, a, a really nice, a really great kid in town who's a drummer named Ben Stone. So the one I, I'm a part of, they're raising money for a fund that's in his name for that helps music alliance helps uninsured musicians to get insurance or to get help with their bills. And so, you know, it's, it's for a great cause, but it's also just November, you know, ahead of Thanksgiving is last waltz time, of course. And, uh, so for the Nashville one, they, there's always, they just find three people to lead a band for the night or three bands get up there, usually a different singer for every tune. And so for mine, I've been, um, it's just me and whoever I get each year is the, the third set. And, um, you know, I, I have a few different singers come up and then some of the guys I, that are playing can sing too. And it's, it's the same thing every year. You know, there's, there's a set, there's another set and I play a set and then everybody comes out and sings the weight and I shall be released. And that's a kind of what happens. Like you said, there's a ton of those all around the country now. 
And I think it speaks to a lot of things, but nothing more than the power of not just the mythology of the band, but the fact that the music after 40 years or 50 years lives up to the mythology. Um, you know, the more the music, the band is one of those bands that the better you get, the better they get as a musician and as a player. If you're in a rock and roll band and you think you're getting somewhere, then go put some of their records on and go watch some of their live, go get some live tapes of them and then come back to me. And that's what any, any band goes through. And so, it's it's a weird like why is that true because you know, i think i think to like to, to the layperson they would listen to the band and be like well they're not doing long guitar solos they're not playing technical parts right. you know, what is it about them that makes them such a you know pivotal i, I think band? it's just i think that you know there's a real intensity and a ferocity to how they play um those songs might sound very calm and pretty and perfectly arranged but you know they were a rock and roll band they were a bunch of 60s speed freaks. You know what I mean? They were, they were, they lived on the edge. Those guys were very hard living. And when they played live, you know, you watch Levon play and sing. I mean, it's, he's getting, he's, he's going through an exorcism every gig. And, <laughs> right. and, 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 and I'm, you know, listen to Danko sing or Richard Manuel sing. It's, it's, it's impossible to put into words how much, you know, it's a great example to me, and I think this is the kind of subconscious stuff that people don't really recognize, but it works, is the desperation and the angst and the the the, the difficulty of just getting through the day, that comes out in those guys singing. That's not cliche, and that's not romanticized. I mean, I took a look at that thing, like you said, I just put it on and and was flipping through the songs, and I still get stuck listening, going, God damn. You know, I mean, I've heard it a thousand times. Yeah, and they really just were special, and and they had. It's like they had gone through so much. They they that they could that they could simplify things down for the for the studio for those recorded versions. Like you said, yeah, no blistering guitar solos. But you know, I mean, famously, like Eric Clapton heard their first record and just you know wanted to jump off a bridge. It was like, oh, fuck, Cream sucks. Listen to this. You know, like they. Yeah. It's it's it, it's weird to talk about music. It never makes sense, and it always sounds trite. But but the better the 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 more the more educated, the more experienced, the more nuanced, the more everything, the more developed you are as a musical entity, the more that the band is impressive to you. Right. Um, you know, like I said, the better you get, the better they get. Like they're they're every bit as awe inspiring to me as they were in 1988 when I was like how do you play that? You know what I mean? Well, I can play it now and I like it more. It's even better. It's more, you know, every, it's like, especially on those first few records, every decision they made was perfect. Every, everything they left out was perfect. They, they were just so smart about what they were doing. And I guess, you know, a lot of that is down to Robbie and the way he put those songs together, but they, they were, they were just an incredibly unique and special group of guys. You know I mean? What's, it's there. There are very few bands that pull off the whole "let's all play each other's instruments" where they do it because you know a lot of bands do that because it's just shtick. You know, it's like, no, I mean, Levon plays a good mandolin, so hey, Richard, go play the drums. Okay, you know, it's that simple. It's just that just works for this tune. And I, I don't know. They were just all Swiss Army knives. It was like a whole band of guys that did a lot of great things, and they somehow figured out how not to get it all cluttered up. I know you got to know Levon a bit toward the end of his life because you guys made uh, a record 
like at his place in Woodstock, right? I mean, the, the... yeah, yeah. We in two thousand nine, we made uh, the last. Uh, well, the second to last Black Crow's actual official album that was released. We did it at Levon's Barn, the Midnight Ramble Barn in Woodstock, and um, he was. Yeah, he was around. We were there for three weeks, and we saw him for a few minutes, just about every day, and then you know he he stayed out of our way for the most part, not that we ever would have seen him as anything but welcome. We, you know, it would have been great if he'd hung out the whole time, but he was, uh, you know, the Levon that I met and got to know a little bit was just, just filled with gratitude and happy to be alive and happy to have the ramble going and had a great band and was thrilled that we were using his barn and thrilled that we understood how special a place it was. I mean, it was just always, smiles and happiness and positivity and warmth he was he was just wonderful to be around yeah so like overall like in the I guess history of like music documentaries or, or or concert films where do you where do you put the last waltz is it the best or do, would you put like stop making sense above it or, or some other movie i honestly i i i'll watch stop making sense before the last waltz because there's nothing about stop making sense that makes me sad <laughs> or honestly that i can even relate to in a good or bad way stop making sense i mean i still remember the first time i saw it and i didn't move or breathe for 90 minutes i was like that's the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life right um but but that said i've watched the last waltz probably more than any other concert film you know um and, and it probably just but by choice if i'm picking one out the truth is i don't I don't put those things on very often. I mean, I I want to see something I've never seen before. Yeah, I'll you know if you tell me like, oh hey, here's a great video of of the band at some gig, I'd put that on and watch the whole thing. I'd eat it all up, you know. If you like, hey, here's Zeppelin, Seattle '72. I'm like, really? I'd watch that, but you know, I don't have to go back to the well very much for stuff I've already seen. But right. um, I think it's probably I'd say you, you could make a case that it's the best ever because I'll tell you what, no one's doing stop making sense tribute shows. <laughs> you know, right. no one's doing no one's doing those kind of tribute shows for anything else, is there? I mean, is there anything that compares to the you know fifty years later and now forty years after the last waltz that musicians are still discovering and saying, "I got to get in on that. I'm going to go play this gig." I mean, I, I, there's it's an odd. Thing. I mean, the band were very big in their day, but they also went away without a, a vapor trail. You know, when it was over, it was kind of over. Right. And like you said, they rebanded without Robbie, and they played clubs. Right. And you know, it gets so dark. I mean, the the if they had if they had pulled the plug after the last waltz and got, and all gone on to have just done other things, it would be a much easier watch for me. But I can't watch that and not think about Richard Manuel hanging himself in a fucking Holiday Inn in Florida. <laughs> I mean, right. I can't. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, awful. It's it's awful, and I I look at that look on his face like every time, like look at that guy, he's thirty three years old, and he was still around for another ten years. Yeah, and yeah. and and he finally ended it. You know, it's it's so so heartbreaking. And then Danko, before he died, he just ballooned up. He was huge and super unhealthy. And then you know, it's it's just it's just so much. And look at all that Levon went through. I mean. And he fi- cancer finally did kill him, but my God, he was just, he was making movies and he still had things happening and did that first all-star tour with Ringo. I mean, he had probably the best, well, not probably, definitely outside of, you could say Robbie, I guess, you know, Levon had the best run of things 
to keep him busy and that he was happy about and fruitful in, you know, after the ban. But it was, it's hardly a good end of the story. Um, it's interesting to me, too, that more bands haven't done the climactic final concert. You know, like you have the band and you have the Beatles, you know, the, the, the rooftop well, and you thing. Just, it's, it's because bands are fucking stupid. It's like, <laughs> you know, I, it, 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 it's, you know, R.E.M. is the greatest ever breakup because they just issued a press release. <laughs> like, right. You know, but they should have and, done like one more show. They could have done one more show yeah, like at the 40 but, Watt or something. That would have been kind of Yeah, cool. they could have. But it, but honestly, in keeping with the way they always operated, it was perfect. And I... And they're the only band that ever broke up that when I saw it, I, I, I was like, boy, they will never play together again. I, I, I will, I'd bet my house that that's real because that's just how they are. They're very real people. But yeah. um, it's, I tell you what it is. Uh, the reason for a lot of bands, um, including one I used to play in, the idea of a farewell show or a farewell tour for a lot of people, it's terrifying. You, you just, you lit your whole, you know, for, for an awful lot of artists and musicians anyway, you know, a finite ending, despite the fact you can say you never want to do it again, like, but to go out and do that, it's, your whole life is gray and, and it's subject to change and it's, you're on the whims of your, you know, whatever your whimsy takes you, that's where I'll go. And to say, hey, this is done. Let's get on stage. There, there, there'd be a tremendous pressure if you are literally saying, this is it, this is our last show. Yeah. And, and, and in the case of most bands, the set list for the last gig you're ever going to play, it would take years to, to negotiate. Yeah, it's, <laughs> How it, do you fucking know what to play? It's funny, though, because you know, there's that band LCD Sound System. You know, They, they did uh, like their final show at Madison Square Garden and, in okay. 2011, and uh, there was a documentary made out of, about it called Shut Up and Play the Hits, and then they got back together like five years later, and like they're still yeah. together now. So it's like, you, yeah. I mean, you bands, you could, you know, you could do the, you know, I think it'd be like a funny gag to like, you know, oh, like at the end of every tour, just do that, and then that that's like your gag. Like you, it's like, right. we're done, and then, you know, a year later, you put out a new album. Well, like, oh. you just have to, you know, it, it, the most important thing, I mean, the only bands that can, that can end correctly are bands who are already on the same page in real time yeah and and you know from personal experience if you aren't if you are a completely you know if you're if your band turns into yugoslavia after marshall tito dies then <laughs> you know he ain't coming back to put you together and tell you what to play for your last night you know what i mean if it once it once it's fractured when it were when it's shattered into pieces they don't come back together to agree to how to end it it's just that just doesn't work doesn't right. happen right well and i feel like nowadays too you know there's uh you break up and everyone dies and then there's the hologram tour after that so you know yeah, who, who knows when it, who knows when it's the end yeah <laughs> well it's definitely um um you know and, and and i don't begrudge bands for for doing it or for not doing it it's all you know, you have the thing about what does it look like to the fans. It, but if a band was never concerning themselves with their image and their legacy when they existed, then then they're not going to they're not going to put it together. For bands that do reunite and get back together, I just look at it real simply, like, hey, good for you. I mean, if you're if it's a good thing, if you're get it, if I, I'm just past the point of, you know, it's 
I love new bands. I love young bands. I, I still love finding a new band and watching them develop. And I love music as much as I ever have, even though what I need it for and what I use it for and how it makes me, and what certain things make me feel that's changed over the years. But I think for anybody who's in their fifties, they're going to look at it a little differently. Yeah. Playing music is still the same. It's just what it always has been. Like if I'm playing music, man, it's, I'm in a time machine and time has stopped for <laughs> while I'm sitting in a kit. That's always fantastic. And I understand very clearly that, you know, five years, six years, 10 years later, if you're missing that feeling, yeah, it's like shit. But, you know, uh, there's a lot about in, in the Black Crows, for example, a lot about how it felt to play in that band in the 90s. We, we couldn't get that back if we tried. And I wouldn't want to. It was just, it's hard. And it's the, the things that were required for that band to be at its best, no one has anymore. Right. Like there's, you know, I'm sorry, I got kids. I got 20 more years of life experience. I've got perspective. I've lost people that are very close to me. I can't, I can't literally, you can't put everything you have into one song. <laughs> and, and the Black Rose did for a while. Like we, right. we became a great band at, at, and, but you know, at, at a great cost. And I can still get, I can, I love playing and I still love to play. And I'm, I'm making a record right now with some guys up in Massachusetts. I'm having a blast. And I leave every night just like, oh, that was what a great day. Right. Um, and it's more than enough for me. It's, it's great. You know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I want to go play. I'm going to continue to play for as long as I can. But, you know, it's, it's just, I don't even remember where we started with this, but the, the idea that bands, you know, saying it's over for real. I mean, I, if you think about it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to just go, okay, let's never play again. I mean, it, because, who knows? Like, you know, Ed Harsh died a couple of years ago, the Black Crows piano player. And, and to me, that really was, and I'd never had a conscious linear thought in my head once of maybe we'll get back together. But I do know that when Ed died, I was like, well, that's the, I mean, forget it. Right. <laughs> you right. know, like, okay. I, I had never spent any time thinking about putting the original lineup with Ed back together or, or any lineup with Ed back together. Um, I, I knew that wasn't possible, but I will say that when he died, it definitely, you know, there was an open door that I didn't know was open that closed. Right. That said, there could be a great, you know, if somebody says, Hey, come do this thing and you're going to save this town or what, you know, there's other reasons <laughs> that go beyond how band members. So my point is whenever bands get back together, you don't know what they're really doing. Right. For. Yeah. They could be saving it, lives. And, and relevance is, it's if, if people are in a room having fun and you're playing, God bless you. Keep playing. Exactly. You know what I mean? If you can, exactly. you know, there's enough shit in the world. I mean, like you and I talked about Greta Van Fleet, you know, and, uh, I talked to another journal, actually did an interview about them recently, but you and I've talked about them and people are like, they're just like, I'm like, you know what? Kids in their twenties like rock music right now. Fucking keep playing, <laughs> plug in and let it rip, man. Right. Right. I don't care if I don't like it. I haven't even listened to it. I'll get around to it. Maybe right. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is they're playing real instruments with their hands and people dig it. That's great. You can never, ever, ever say that that's a bad thing. Absolutely. You know, ultimately you, you don't have to like it, but you, you can't knock it and try to stop it. Yeah, exactly. Steve, it's always a pleasure talking with you. It is always a pleasure, sir. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about, hopefully, on this podcast very soon. But until then, uh, have a good Thanksgiving. 
Yeah, really. Happy Thanksgiving to you. The mm-hmm. um, I, I I do want to say if you, you should tweet out your link, the, the piece you wrote about the last waltz about is it the greatest Thanksgiving film of all time? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. You, you should you should whip that one back out because that was a fine piece of writing. Well, sir. thank you. I will. That I'm I'm scheduling that right now on my uh, on my phone as 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 we speak. Happy, happy Thanksgiving, one and all fans of rock and roll music. All right, man. Thanks again, Steve. All right. See you. All right, that was me and Steve Gorman. Always a great guest. Always love talking to Steve. And, of course, our project that we have going on that I, we can't talk about it that much. It's kind of top secret. Well, it's not top secret. I've, I've talked about it on this podcast, haven't I? Yeah. But, you know, the details of, of the book Steve and I are doing, we're going to keep under wraps for now, but it, I'm really excited about it. So uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that more in the new year here on the podcast. Uh, I want to thank, as always, Derek Madden, the man who makes it happen, our producer. Thank you, Derek. I want to thank Josh Copperman for writing our great theme song. Thank you, Josh. I want to thank all of you, our listeners, for uh, sticking with us, reviewing us, talking about us. I'm feeling a little emotional now. It's it's Thanksgiving. you got to be thankful. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Tears are running down my cheeks right now thinking about our Celebration Rock listeners. Thank you so much for all that you do and for supporting us. We would not be here without you. Uh, Guys, we will not be back again next week. Uh, We're going to take a little vacation next week, but we we will be back in early December for our sort of last run of episodes in in 2018. we got some good stuff planned for you. I think you're going to like it. So we're we're not going to be around next week, but we'll, we'll be back again. So don't worry. We'll, we'll take a little break from each other. We're we'll be all right. some time for people to be thankful for us. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So thank you so much for listening. We will be back again very soon. Take it easy. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. Are you ready for hard-hitting observations? Reality remains reality no matter how hard you try to ignore it. The Ben Shapiro Show brings you all the news you need to know in America today. Again, I'm all here for the pop culture, people dating each other for the press. Ben breaks down the culture and never gives an inch. Every so often, and by every so often, I mean literally every 27 seconds when the producer gets fired. The Ben Shapiro Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. 